Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hanson. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Yeah, so you have a new book out. It's titled Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And if you're interested in ordering it, you can find it pretty much wherever books are sold. And today I wanted to focus mostly on the first part of the subtitle and talk with you a bit about how we can get better at navigating conflict in our relationships. And we'll start by talking about some general concepts, but I also thought it would be fun to make this as as practical as possible for people. And I'd like to describe a couple of fairly common interactions I've seen people get stuck in, and I'll ask you how people might navigate them a bit more skillfully. Does that sound good to you? Oh, great. My bread and butter as a longtime couples counselor and longtime husband and father and neighbor (laughs) and son (laughs) and brother and human. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, for sure. Talking about the first part of that, couples counseling, what were some of the most common kinds of conflict, either in a one person who's talking about something that they're dealing with in their life or when people enter your office as a couple that you saw between people? Yeah. Well, first off, conflict is normal to have differences of wants and temperaments and styles, misunderstandings. You know, conflict is normal. And the question is not how do we get rid of conflict, but how do we approach it? How do we do conflict well, as much as possible? And whether it's with a romantic couple or a parent-child relationship or a family system or partners at work, I used to do a lot of business consulting. I've just seen these four recurring conflicts again and again and again. One is where there's just a disagreement about how somebody said something. Yeah. Tone, interpretation, a charged word, how they said it. Totally distinct from what they said. Okay, one. Two, disagreements about what something means. In other words, how bad was what somebody did? Or what did it mean? Were they doing it on purpose, for example? What does something mean? That's a second major thing that people can just disagree about. Third, very common, a collision of wants. You got person A and person B. Life is really sweet when, of course, they 100% want the same thing. But what do you do when what they want is different? Yeah. Including maybe really different. And then fourth, what do you do when there's just, they're just different people? Their temperaments are different. Their fundamental Mm -hmm. nature is different. Maybe one person really likes it orderly and another person really likes it messy. Hmm, sounds like you're dad and mom, <laughs> respectively. What do you do then, right? She'd say lived in, dad. Lived, lived in. in. She likes that's... the room to feel lived in. Yes. <laughs> well, that's really good. My aesthetic is sort of like Zen Scandinavian. You know? <laughs> that's kind of how I like it. Okay. What do you do? So those are the four. Those are the big yeah. four that I've seen again and again. Yeah. So I think that there's a, a subset of a couple of them, and maybe we'll use this as a way into talking about some specific examples. And I think that a really common one gets to that category of how somebody said something, right? And a version of that is when somebody's communicating like useful content, but they're doing it with a really bad process. So let's use person A, person B again. I'm going to call person A Alex and person B Blake for the sake of us not confusing A and B over and over again. 
So Alex says something like, you're just such an unreliable person. This is the third time this week you said you were going to be there on time and you just keep on being late. If you can't get this right, how can I trust you with the really important stuff in life? Okay, that's a communication. There's some maybe meaningful, useful content in there. Maybe Alex is right about the number of times the person has been late. But the process has got a lot of emotional topspin. There's some framing of it as a kind of almost moral fault in the other person. Maybe the communication wasn't as clean as it could have been. And then Blake, person B, defends themselves from the complaint by deflecting or focusing on the unskillful process, right? They say something like, wow, I just feel so attacked by you all the time, or I can't believe that you used that tone of voice with me again. I kept on telling you to not use that tone of voice with me. And so here we have a situation where both of the people are right, the content is real, and the process was unskillful, but nothing really gets addressed because they're sort of speaking past each other. For starters, have you seen this come up either in the office or in your own life? And then what do you do about it? Oh, I've seen it a million times and I've yeah. been Alex and I've been Blake. Both, yeah, you know, I've many, been on both sides times. of that one yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, a couple of things here right off the top. I'm reminded of that fantastic quote, I believe from Maya Angelou, that people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Hmm for better or worse. And I'm also thinking about the really important point in that great classic book, You Just Don't Understand, from Deborah Tannen, and I forget her yeah. co-author, sorry, in which they point out as linguists in very practical ways that a communication has three parts. There's the overt content, there's the emotional tone, and there's the implicit statement about the status or the nature of the relationship in terms of standing or power. And Sometimes the emotional tone is just completely neutral. There's just pure information. Well, that's the emotional tone then. The thing is, we're normally much more affected by the emotional tone and also the implicit statement about the nature of the relationship than we are by the explicit content itself. What's the mm -hmm. takeaway from that? The takeaway from that is to, first of all, be really attentive and mindful of the top spin you add, the emotional tone you're adding, and the implicit communication about who's one up and who's one down. And really consider, do you want to add that emotional tone? There's a place for being angry, being really hurt, being really reproachful. Okay, do you want to add that? Be deliberate about it. And similarly, do you really want to add some kind of communication that's about you dominating the other person? Maybe you do. Maybe you need to claim authority here. So that's point one. Pay attention to doing it yourself. The second thing is that I think it's really important to give people room to breathe. This partly mm -hmm. goes to what things mean and also what people want and their temperaments because there's normal diversity in what things mean to different people and what they want and what their temperaments are. So for example, I think it's okay that interactions may well start a little heated. You know, person A, Alex, didn't say it with perfect tone. All right. But you know, it's not where interactions start that counts the most. It's where they end that much research shows has the greatest effect. And so I think there's a place for giving the other person some room to breathe if they came in kind of hot and heavy to be mm -hmm. able to sort out how they said it from what they said it, and then eventually work your way back to how they said it with a request for, you know, could you say it a little differently next time? Because I do want to hear you. 
I do want to mm-hmm. give you what you want as best I can. And it's going to be a lot easier for me to do that if you don't come in with guns blazing. I've bumped into problems on both sides of this inside of my own life, you know, as I think that almost everybody has. And one of the things that's been helpful for me is doing what I can to try to separate these two parts of the communication out into two different buckets that we try to address separately rather than together. Yeah. Because when we're trying to address everything together, then it's really easy for me as either Alex or as Blake here to take the part of the argument or take the part of the conversation that is most beneficial to my viewpoint, right? As Blake, it's really easy to focus on the tone. As Alex, it's really easy to focus on the content because that's the part of it where I'm right. But if we separate them out into two separate Mm. buckets or we do what we can to disentangle them, and you can have a process conversation with people about this, even live real time, you can do it. You can have a moment as Blake in this equation where you say something along the lines of, okay, I want to be really responsive to what you're saying to me. I want to show up in the ways that you want me to show up. I want to be here on time. I really apologize for the ways that I haven't done that in the past. And also, when you're communicating it to me in that way, it's really, really tough for me to get the message because I'm all caught up in the messenger. And so you can kind of do that sort of live process if you're in a relationship where that's possible for you, whether it's with a friend or a significant other or whatever else. And sometimes you're not in a relationship where that's possible. But I think that the ability to resolve conflicts like this effectively is such a huge indicator of whether or not you're in a situation that's like long-term going to be good for you. Right on. That's great. Now I'm thinking about some practical tips here. Yeah. First, there's the transmitter and the receiver. Yeah. So if you're in the position of being Alex, where you're Mm -hmm. coming in, you have a communication to make. And let's suppose that you're pissed off about it. You've just kind of had it. And maybe your own experience here is turbocharged by your own history. Maybe as a kid, you were left waiting a lot by parents who promised that they would do something with you or that they would show up on time, maybe even kind of catastrophically. Like, oh, gee, mom forgot to pick me up because maybe she thought where dad was going to pick me up. And there I was Mm -hmm. standing at the bus stop in the rain for an hour. Maybe that's a turbocharger. Okay. So here you are, revved up. You got something to say. First, distinguish between your intent and your impact. Your intent could be really good. But pragmatically, kapow, that other person is going to be on the receiving end of your full head of steam. And Mm -hmm. one thing that's been actually helpful for me to realize is that even though my intent is good when I'm talking with people and I don't think of myself as particularly powerful because I still carry with me that sense of being kind of a shy, nerdy, unpopular, quiet, subordinate kind of kid, the truth is I have a lot of impact in part due to the privilege I carry and also just I can definitely get intense, as you well know. You know, I'm so sorry about it, Forrest. Anyway, (laughs) the takeaway here is to realize, you know, you're going to have an impact on this person. What impact do you really, really want to have for their Mm -hmm. sake and for your sake? Which then goes to my second tip, which is if you come in guns blazing, that gives the other person an easy out that they don't have to deal with what you're saying because they can just rattle on about how you said it the wrong way. And that diverts attention from what you really want them to face. So those two tips I find really helpful for me, along with the notion mm. that there's a video camera in the corner of the room that's recording how I'm, what I'm doing, and it'll be played at your wedding if you ever have one, you know, but also <laughs> maybe my <laughs> memorial service. 
I think it's I think it's probable. I think it's probable. I think we're wandering in that direction, but that's a conversation for a different podcast episode. Um, I, I think that, so one of the things you're making me think of here, Dad, yeah. is how, I don't know if this is a little too like meta or left field, but it's really good to separate out what your actual goals are yep. from what you're communicating to another person. And to ask yourself really honestly, is my goal to be righteous and affronted and wronged? Yeah. Or is my goal to solve this problem? Because sometimes a goal is to feel righteous and affronted oh, and wrong. Yeah. I have absolutely entered arguments where like my goal in that argument was to like be righteous and feel righteous. And even if I could add to perpetuate the conflict as a mode of attaching while distancing. Oh, I like that. Could you expand that a little bit for a second, attaching while distancing? Oh, sorry to interrupt you there. But what I mean is, in addition to just the reward value of righteousness, and it's very useful to appreciate that righteousness produces all kinds of rewards, including biochemicals in the brain. Yeah, ramping yourself up. It can feel yeah. good. All of that. Totally. Yeah. And anger is the one emotion, the one so-called negative emotion that has releases of dopamine and norepinephrine with it, which feel rewarding. In addition to that, consider the function that conflict serves and the ways in which people attach through bickering or attach mm -hmm. through quarreling, because mm -hmm. it's a way of being in relationship while simultaneously distancing from the other person and finding that optimal distance in which, yeah, you're still connected aversively, but it's still mm -hmm. a connection. Be really careful about that. That's really interesting. No, I, I think that that's a great point. And also the seeking of soothing can be associated with that where you want the person to come to you as a soother. And so it's a, it's a bid for connection in a kind of way, which is sort of funny to think about an argument as a bid for connection, but I think that can definitely show up for people. Well, I think that's very well said. And the, the word here, I, a word here I think is useful is reproach. That's what you're talking there. Coming yeah, totally. in with a sense of a grievance, a sense of reproach, you've been wounded, and in it is a kind of beseeching. But instead of simply asking for soothing directly or comfort directly or love directly, which is really quite vulnerable, by leading with the complaint, it reduces that sense of vulnerability and puts a claim in effect on the other person, especially if you doubt that other people will come through for you unless you put that claim upon them through that reproachful complaint. And all this is often quite centered in attachment styles in early childhood. We're finding our way here, I think, to, to a point that I'm not sure if I've heard anyone else out there make. I'm sure somebody has at some point. But a lot of the time we frame unskillful communication as just unskillful. Yo, the person's just an unskillful communicator. They didn't know what they were doing. And that's that's implicit in it, right? They just didn't know better. But a lot of the time, unskillful communication is actually very skillful. Mm. Just what they're looking for is different yep. from solving the problem or coming to a agreement with another person. Their motivations are different. And the communication was skillful in pursuit of those motivations those motivations just weren't problem solving. Does that make sense? Oh, it's fantastic. It was, it's functional. In other words, it's, you know, the classic line, cui bene in Latin, who benefits or follow the money. Mm -hmm. In other words, yeah. what's the payoff, right? What function does this serve? And sometimes we stumble into things with other people just unwittingly, or it's a kind of robotic habit. 
if you will, uh, that has long passed its sell-by date. But very often, what we do that seems so counterproductive often or full of collateral damage for ourselves and others, we do it because at some unconscious level, we think it will serve an important psychological function. So understanding that psychological function is really useful and then trying to find other ways, other ways to fulfill it. Well, this was super interesting. Can I add one more tip? Please go ahead, yeah. Oh, a different thing. Well, now let's suppose you're on the receiving end. You're Blake, and Alex is coming in hot and heavy, guns blazing. Yeah, a lot of top spend. What do you do? One thing you can do that's just pragmatically helpful is build up the inner strengths that we talked about in the book Resilient, and a large fraction of my new book, Making Great Relationships, is about that. How do you build up your own inner strength? So in, in the metaphor, you feel like a deeply rooted tree that can allow the hot wind of the other person's intensity to blow through you. And then after the the storm passes a bit, you can decide what to do and to what extent you want to focus on the content or to what extent you want to focus on their process, their tone, the way they did it. So rooting yourself in that way is in your best interest because then it gives you options. And then second, if you address the content of the other person, especially first, it pragmatically puts you on a much stronger footing to then get to how they said it. Because you've handled their content, undeniably, you've gone to the maximum reasonable extent you can respond to it, and then you're in a really strong position to focus on and to get after how they actually said it and how they don't need to say it next time. In those four categories that you listed at the beginning of the conversation, to again, like quickly remind and summarize, Uh, disagreements about the meaning of something, disagreements about what someone wants, disagreements about how somebody said something, and then finally, disagreements related to different temperaments, values, or so on. I think that some of these tend to wreathe together with each other in different kinds of ways, right? Makes total sense. Yeah. Where an argument about how somebody said something, this tone conversation that we're having right now, can also be connected to people who have different temperaments or, or values. Maybe one of them is or one member of a relationship or a family is more conflict-driven in these kinds of ways. They they get that good buzz off of a little oh, yeah. bit of uh, aggression and banter, even when they're kind of joking. There's a sort of chippiness to it back and forth. I've definitely gone there in my own life from time to time. And then the other person is a little bit more sedate. They're more calm. They don't like that interactive style so much. And so in the first situation, you've got not like clear right and wrong, But there's some clear stuff where, yeah, Alex should probably communicate that a little bit differently, and yeah, Blake should probably show up on time. But when it gets to just temperament, temperament is temperament. It's it's quite hard to change, and people aren't really right or wrong for being one way or another. How have you helped people navigate those differences? Mm. Well, one really key aspect of temperament is extroversion and introversion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you classically can have a relationship in which one person is quite happy with minimal social contact and the other person is really eager to have it. Now, people can, of course, be kind of in the middle of it all. I would say I'm I'm a warm, I'm a friendly introvert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is funny to say for somebody who spends most of their workday talking to people or on (laughs) Zoom, having conversations and interviews. But no, I I think that that's an accurate description of your personality. Yeah, yeah. And I've kind of learned to recharge with fairly brief 
periods of, for example, reading a book while I eat a meal mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, your mom understands these things, yeah. <laughs> you know, just 20 minutes, dear, <laughs> 20 minutes. And that's a, that's the pit stop I need. But what do you do? And it's so easy for us to make our own way of being a law of nature that we proclaim from the rooftops as a universal value. But in fact, it's not. There's just tremendous neurological diversity, in part, in my theory of it, rooted in the way that humans evolved in tribal bands, small bands of around 50 people. It promoted the survival of people in the band who shared genes with each other to have a diversity of temperaments in the band. So you have some people who are kind of like turtles, some people who are like jackrabbits in terms of the ADHD sort of topic. You have some people who are introverts, some who are extroverts, some people who are really cautious, some people who are really bold, some people who are quiet, some people who are loud. Bands that had temperamental diversity outcompeted other bands for scarce resources back in the Stone Age. So it's really normal. So that's one of the first steps is to normalize the temperament of the other person and to not make your own temperament better than them. Now you have to deal with the difference. It's okay but we have to start by normalizing the differences. One thing that I find it's really important to appreciate is that even though we have our natural temperaments, they are our home base, we're also very psychologically flexible if we want to be. Mm. Think about the very wide range of cultures in the world, all of whom, more or less, are functioning with the same fundamental genetic blueprint, and yet the cultures are really, really different. That gives you a sense of how much we can actually stretch for each other. So for me, first, step one is to honor your own temperament and to make sure you are getting that temperament's needs met, maybe in solitude, maybe in boisterous extroverted activity with others, whatever, maybe having a corner of your home that's orderly and neat, like my closet, you know, <laughs> while the rest is total chaos, you know, whatever that might be. So make sure that need is being met which then enables you to stretch for the other person, to find, to cultivate, to evoke more of an interest in what they're interested in so that you can join them as a co-enthusiast. So much of what we long for is that other people are co-enthusiasts with us around something we care about. We can mobilize that, whether it's to listen deeply for half an hour while your partner speaks at some length about something or other, or to find a natural interest in some kind of romantic contact. We can stretch. And people mm -hmm. then sometimes say to me, oh, but that's phony. It's not natural. It's not a real gift. And by the way, mm. if you are the person who really wishes that your partner would stretch for you or your mm -hmm. friend or your family member in some way, mm -hmm. and then they do stretch for you, but you dismiss it or poo-poo You make their stretching wrong, yeah. Yeah, because, oh, well, they had to be deliberate about it. It wasn't natural. And that's a huge mistake, in part because it'll mm -hmm. discourage them from stretching yeah. for you in that way in the future. The way totally. I think of it to finish is that this kind of stretching, and only within the range of what's authentic, but going to the high end of that range. Mm -hmm. You know, if this is your natural range and your partner's up here, right? To stretch yourself to the high end of your natural range will give you the overlap that you need, the bridge that you need for where they are. And that stretching is doubly loving. It's doubly mm -hmm. caring. It's doubly friendly and, and kind because first, what you are experiencing is genuine for you. 
And second, the willfulness behind it, the deliberateness behind it, is loving and caring as well. Yeah, a great question to ask here is, what's a version of this that would also feel good for me? Yeah. Or what's a version of this that would also feel good for you? So to use the socializing party example, what is a version of hanging out with our friends more that would also feel fun for you? Because a lot of the time, at least in my experience, the problem that's happening isn't that a person doesn't want to do a whole category of things. It's that they don't want to do the specific version of that category that has become a baseline for the relationship. Mm. Like the friend group always goes out to a bar when they socialize. And the person just doesn't want to go to a bar. It's not yeah. because they don't want to socialize. It's that they want to be in a different kind of environment when they're doing it. And it's really easy for those two things to start to get entwined or entangled with each other. So if we have a habit that we've developed as a group over time, it can be really normal to look at that habit and be like, oh, that's just the way it is. That's just the way that people do this. It's like, well, what if we did it a different way? And would that feel a little bit more comfortable for everybody involved? Oh, yeah. And then sometimes what gets in the mix, and it goes back to what I said about Deborah Tannen's point about mm. there's very often an, an implicit communication of power or the possibility of there being a misinterpretation around power. So for example, to use your example, let's say you're Alex who doesn't want to go to the bar, maybe because it's too loud to talk and they yeah. love conversation and there's just so much background noise. Or maybe they're trying to drink less and they just don't want to be surrounded by that temptation. Or, you know, maybe they just don't like talking with people who've had three drinks and are getting kind of garrulous and sloppy, whatever. All right, so now Alex has said, hey, can we not go to the bar this time? Love to hang out. How about we just go to this coffee shop or just hang out, go to my house, your house, just talk. And then somebody in the room, in the group, pipes up and says, I feel like you're pushing me around. You're trying to control me. Yeah. You're trying to, there you are. You're trying to control me. You're trying to have uh, it your way. You're being so controlling again. You're always yeah. trying to have it your way, Alex. Blah, 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 blah. Wow. At that point, there's an escalation because it's moved from just the content, as you say, about a simple choice. You know, go to a bar, go to somebody's home, let's say, to, oh, wow, this is about power. This is about you dominating me. And then all kinds of stuff gets in the mix. You know, I'm sick and freaking tired of being pushed around. I've been pushed around my whole life. I'm not going to be pushed around about something as stupid as going to a bar. How dare you? You know, whoa. How about I just pause there and ask you, if you were in that situation, if you were Alex, say, how might you handle it that, let's say, Blake in the friend group is accusing you of power tripping? It's a great question. And I definitely don't have a perfect answer here. And I think that from group to group, it's going to probably vary a little bit. My, my first tendency is to go to the feeling tone level if I have that kind of a relationship with the other person wow, I definitely didn't mean to communicate that. That wasn't what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say was fill in the blank and then get to clarity. A lot of the time people give that response not because of your communication, but because of how your communication happened to intersect with their material in that moment. Yeah. And so they're not actually looking for clarity. They don't want clarity. Clarity is not the goal. They just want to go to the bar. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier about, okay, is it unskillful process or is it skillful process in pursuit of different wants and needs than, than conflict resolution? 
And I think that those kinds of escalations that we often see are really good examples of that. They're skillful process in pursuit of bad content, mm. if that kind of makes sense. Or you mean by skillful, you mean effective or functional. Yeah, effective yeah. process, functional process in the pursuit it works of bad content. To play that, yeah, it works. To play that card. Totally, because it's really hard to respond to. Like I'm, I'm immediately on the back foot. Oh, yeah. Anything that I say now in the conversation has been put into question. I'm under the microscope. We're no longer talking about whether or not we should be going to a bar for the third night this week. We're talking about this whole other different kind of thing. And I just think it's a really tough situation. I'm actually a little bit more curious than your take on this, Dad, from almost a, almost a professional angle because it connects to an example that I wanted to ask you about a little bit later, but you've already kind of brought it into the space where one person, Alex, does something like a little edgy. They're driving a little aggressively. They put one too many logs onto a bonfire on the beach or something, and it just looks a little funky. And Blake responds with something like, wow, this is making me a little uncomfortable. And then Alex says something like, well, don't you trust me? Yeah. And it's like, what, huh? Like now we're talking about a different kind of thing. And I think that this escalation of, well, you're just trying to control me again is just another version of that. Both of these are great. And let's definitely say, you know, do the trust thing too. First off, what's, what's really helpful is to do kind of like the instant replay frame by frame, mm -hmm. in effect. So Alex has said, I just don't want to go to the bar, blah, blah, go, go to somewhere else tonight. Da, da, da. Blake says, hey, man, you're just trying to push us around, you know, and I'm kind of sick of it. I'm tired of it. Fine. Okay. So first off, I think it's helpful to look at all this through the frame of primate politics. And I think there's some <laughs> kind of book that I quoted somewhere, Baboon Politics. And uh, we're social primates who are very used to structures of dominance. You know, it's in our primate capacity to go there. So just, it's helpful, I think, to kind of look at this as dominance displays and all the rest of it. Second point, very often there's a common move that has a lot of functional benefit in which person B accuses person A Blake accusing Alex of doing what person B is actually doing. Sure. Just classic projection move. Yeah. Yep. Or B accuses A of being something that B is on steroids. So if you really want to understand the nature of B, listen to what they accuse A of. Sometimes this is true. Third, the truth is Alex has every right in the world to assert power. And if Alex at all has a history or belongs to a group of people who've been subordinated by others, it's especially important for Alex to claim the right to be powerful. And so I want to kind of model here variations of this. So one variation is for Alex to pause and to just look at Blake. Not with contempt, not with criticism, but to just pause for two or three beats for a quarter of a breath, half a breath, that itself is a really effective thing to do. You're just holding your ground. Second, Alex might do something to defuse the situation, not out of submission and subordination, but out of skillfulness. To you know, say something to lighten it up a little bit, maybe make fun of themselves in some small way, maybe in a little bit of a goofy way, just kind of ease the tension, a little grace note. That could be done. 
Or maybe Alex could just sort of look at Blake and, you know, over the course of three really quick seconds in their mind, realize, you know, this is about the third time Blake has done that with me. And, you know, this is what Blake does with others. Blake is the straw that stirs the drink in this friend group. And he kind of has a quality of entitlement. And, you know, I've ducked a handful of times already, and I'm not going to duck this time. So you make a choice. You make a fundamental choice in which you're willing to pay the price, if there is one, by kind of going with the escalation. And then at that point, you might just say kind of calmly, with gravity and self-respect, because of course, Blake wants to knock Alex off his footing, right? And Blake wants Alex to give up and to, you know, show his belly like a submissive dog might in a dog pack. And instead, Alex just looks at Blake with self-respect and gravity and says, kind of calmly, well, actually, I'm expressing a preference, much as you're expressing a preference. So we both have the right to express a preference, and that's the preference I'm expressing. Mm -hmm. Just think of that, you know, really kind of lands. You're not attacking Blake, but you are making it really clear. And just that simple communication, that kind of gravity in it, is itself an assertion of your own power, which you have the right. And then maybe last, just in the range, the buffet of options, maybe Alex is willing to just go to the higher level and name what's in the room already, which is that Maybe Blake is a bit of a bully. And so Alex, possibly, I'm not saying Alex should, but Alex might say something like, well, I'm honestly just expressing a preference. And, you know, you're the person who's really asserting a lot of power here by trying to shut down my expression of preferences. So I'll just leave it there. What do you think? Yeah, for me, the, the revelation in that is that they were both expressing power. And that was a really interesting breakthrough kind of internally for me listening to you say that. Yeah, because I think it comes back to what you were saying about uh, projection and how often people make accusations of what they are concerned that they are or what they are in reality. The trust example, I think, comes back to that in some ways too, where again, we've got Alex who does something a little bit kind of edgy Blake who says, hey, this is making me a bit uncomfortable. And then Alex says, well, don't you trust me? And natural response from Blake, well, don't you trust me? This is what I'm saying, you know? Like, why don't why don't you just take it on faith that it makes me uncomfortable and we could go from there, you know? And I think that that shows up just over and over again inside of our relationships in different ways. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. 
As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. Let's, let's do trust. The trust one, I think, is so interesting and good. So driving in your car or putting a log on a bonfire, right? And so these things where things are probably going to be okay. They're probably yeah. going to be okay. But if they're not, there are real consequences. Yeah. 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 So let's just kind of keep the Alex and Blake structure here going. Mm-hmm. So Alex says to Blake, Hey, could you slow down a little in this rush hour traffic? Yeah. Or let's suppose that Alex moves it a little more intensely. And Alex says to Blake, Slow down. You're going to, you know, this rush hour. There's more of a demand, yeah. So then there's exactly right, you caught it. It shifted into the command mode, which is an assertion of power. And then Blake, let's say, takes it into kind of a power thing and says, oh, don't you trust me? Yeah. Now game is really on. Here, what I've seen work is to slow it down. If you're in the Alex seat, ideally if you're in the Blake seat as well, to slow it down and to realize, whoa, there's been an escalation here. Second, implicit in the escalation around trust is that, in effect, Blake is telling Alex, you need to submit to my power here in continuing to mandate that I'm going to keep driving at this speed or I'm going to leave the log alone. You need to surrender to my power and let me do it my way because that's the communication here. You need to trust me, so-called, so that we're going to continue to do it my way. And then what Alex might do or say is to take it out of the frame of trust. 
For example, Alex might say, oh, I do trust you in a general sense here, certainly. And I just think that the chance of a bad event increases when you're driving this quickly in rush hour traffic. It's not a guarantee of an accident, but the chance of one is increasing here. That's the real issue for me. And also the issue for me is that I'm getting uncomfortable. So you're shifting away from trust to more like a statement of the odds of something, which might sound way too Spock-like. You're you're recentering on the content. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really effective way to do it and to also talk about your own experience and to reframe it as a request. Then what do you do if the Blake character has really gotten their knickers in a twist and refuses to budge. Like, I'm going to drive the damn car the way I want when I'm the driver. You want me to pull over? You drive. And so then what can you do when you're in that Alex position? Kind of depends a lot on the situation. Maybe in the campfire scene, you, you choose to walk away. Or maybe you match the escalation. There's this fundamental principle in game theory that when you're dealing with someone who's being adversarial, which the Blake character is increasingly demonstrating themselves to be, one of the most effective strategies is called tit for tat, where you match them. If they de-escalate, you de-escalate. If they escalate, you escalate as well. So you start creating consequences for them in the interaction, and also you start creating predictions for them, expectations for them in their own mind that if they go to certain places, you're going to go there as well, and you're not going to be intimidated. You might be nervous, your heart might be pounding, but you're not going to be pushed around any longer. That's a very kind of serious step to take to move into tit for tat. It's not because you're retaliating. It's because in game theory, it's your best odd strategy to elicit better behavior from adversaries. You might, about the fire, look to others for social support. That's ideal. And you might say, well, I am going to walk away because I don't trust your capacity to actually hear me and respond. About the fire, it's not a matter of trust, but about being receptive to and respectful of my concerns. Yeah, based on your behavior right now, I don't trust you very much. So I'm going to disengage. Yeah, yeah, that that last bit is really where I think you you make your money relationally. And there are risks. Yeah, there, there are always risks. You know, I, sometimes we have... We get a lot of questions from listeners about relationships or interactions, or I had this argument with my mom, or my kid said this thing to me, or my partner won't fill in the blank. That's like the structure of a fair few of the emails that we get that have questions in them. There are a lot of times when I'm consuming these these questions where I go like, well, are you willing to leave the relationship or not? And, And I think that that's just a really fundamental question in all of this because it sets the guardrails on what our behavior can be. And there are some situations that are unavoidable situations. Maybe you have a relationship with a in-law. That's just, it's it's really hard to exit that relationship because you love your partner and you're kind of stuck with their in-laws a little bit. And that's really, really real. But I think that in all of this, one of the biggest questions is what level am I willing to go to here? What's my maximum? And then from there, you can make a choice about how close to your maximum this interaction is worth. A lot of these things can be deferred until after the moment of suffering. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to 
sit with the suffering and take on the 0.01% risk of a bad outcome. Yeah. And you can wait until you get out of the car and you go, hey, I just got to tell you, you can't drive that way with me anymore. Or be even softer than that. Hey, I just got to tell you, that made me really uncomfortable. And I would really prefer it if we kind of did things a little bit differently in the future. And with that level of tone, if somebody is really negatively responsive to it, man, that's just, it's a bad indicator, you know? It's oh, not yeah. a great indicator. That's right. And if enough of those not great indicators stack up, you need to make some choices, bigger picture about what you want to do with that relationship. Yeah, totally true. Two points here. One yeah. point is that there are a startling number of people, <laughs> all of us, have encountered and will encounter who just feel entitled to have it their way by virtue of just being themselves in totally. their maybe position of privilege in society, or they've just developed a personality that they're a dominator kind of person, they're a top dog alpha kind of person, and that's the way it is. We run into them and they are startled that anyone would dare to have the effrontery of challenging their authority. And then we have to decide what we're gonna do. As you said, we can make immediately a judgment about, hey, is it worth it to challenge the authority of this person? For example, you're, you're taking your kid to a pediatrician. You're telling the pediatrician important information. They keep brushing you off. Do you really want to get into that argument right now with your kid in the room or quietly? Are you going to find a different pediatrician for your child's next well check, for example? There's situations like that. On the other hand, sometimes I really think there's a place for us, mm -hmm. especially if you have a personal history of feeling, of being kind of pushed around, pushed to the side, or living with people who just presumed that they were right and that they were entitled to being in charge of things. It can be really important to start standing up for that in ways that are scaled, you know, in terms of the actual stakes on the table, but to push back. I think there's a psychological value in that for people. There certainly has been for me. And to find ways of pushing back that are effective and grounded in your own virtue and good intentions and sense of well-being. The other thing is that I think there's a place of social good in standing up to bullying of one mm -hmm. kind or another and pushing back at people who think they're oh so entitled to have their opinion listened to or to, you know, so entitled to get their way in routine situations with other people. There's a social good. And even if you don't prevail yourself, there's a social good in other people watching someone stand up in an appropriate way. And I think sometimes there's a social good in other people seeing that they can do this themselves. Great point. And we're all influenced by our tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that my tendency is to be a little conflict avoidant. Yeah. And to, maybe this is just again, as I've gotten a little bit older over time, to be a little bit skeptical about people's capacity to change their behavior, particularly when I'm not in a deeply meaningful relationship with them. Yeah. And to really look at other people and go, look, this is the third time that Blake has pulled this move on me, and I just suspect that if I stay in this relationship, there's going to be a fourth time and a fifth time, and it kind of doesn't really matter what I do. So, you know, damn the torpedoes. The way that I can control my environment is by exiting the relationship or by really adjusting the kinds of interactions that I have with Blake. And that's what allows me to move into a place of having maximal influence over my own life is by influencing who I interact with. 
which is a much better way to control the behavior of other people than actually trying to control their behavior. It's by finding different people to interact with. Yeah, It's a much faster path often to getting what you want from your relationships, actually, which is sort of strange to think about, but I think mm. it's true. And at the same time, I think you're totally right. There really is a place, particularly morally, for delivering a communication with people when their mm. behavior is consistently outside of the bounds of what we would think of as appropriate or, or pro-social or slap whatever word you want on it. And maybe there's this balance that we're kind of speaking to inside of this whole conversation between almost safety on the one hand or, or interpersonal connection, whether it's you're looking for more love and support inside of the relationship or you're looking to influence your environment so you feel a bit more safe. And on the other hand, expressing preference and claiming right authority and including the authority to have some influence over what happens to you. And one of the things that happens to us is the way that people interact with us. And we have that balance over and over again inside of our relationships. And we can make real choices about which side do I want to lean to today? Do I want to lean toward the side of harmony or do I want to lean toward the side of truth? Yep. And I think that the point that you're making, Dad, is that one of the lines that I really like is that those who choose harmony over truth rarely find either. Eventually, yep. And, you know, eventually, if you choose harmony over and over and over again, you won't find harmony and you certainly won't find truth. Yeah. I know we're finishing here and a couple notes to finish on maybe. One is to explore the space in which you're communicating for yourself. And sure, you want to influence, which for me is a preferred word than power. We influence each other. It's okay to want to influence another person to treat you differently or treat other people differently in the future. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we have very limited influence over others. So it's helpful to really mainly focus on communicating for yourself in a way that supports your sense of self-respect. You're going to feel good about later. And you've gone on record. Even if the other person doesn't budge an inch, You've gone on record publicly. You know that they know that you know that they know what you really think and what you really want and what you really see. So just for yourself, that's really important. Second point is that having said what we've said about ways of managing conflict and trying to actually end a conflict and help it come to a soft landing, sometimes we're in situations where we just choose to stay in the conflict. We're going to pursue legal action against somebody perhaps, or we're going to just live with an ongoing wrangle with our kid's school district because we're pushing for better support for our kid learning how to read effectively. So it's not that we're saying for sure that conflict is bad. It's just the question being, you know, how do we help conflicts come to a good resolution when they can? How do we bound conflicts and reduce their impact on us if we can't end them? And ultimately, how do we help ourselves stay in conflicts when we consider that our cause is just? Mm. Great. Thanks for doing this with me today. This was really helpful. I love this topic. And so much of conflict management is about conflict avoidance or prevention is a better word. Prevention. Yeah, totally. It's so helpful with people because interactions have this script-like quality. Think of it as like a moves in chess almost, that you just know if you say X, they're going to think you meant Y, and then they're going to really come at you with Z. So 
Maybe you don't need to say X, or maybe you first need to say A, B, and C, so that when you finally do say X, they're not going to think it's Y, whatever. You know, you're doing a certain amount of anticipation, not out of walking on eggshells or being a submissive doormat, but just out of skillfulness. And as an expression, frankly, of your own autonomy, that you really have the power inside yourself, the agency, to choose how you will interact with others within the range of what's authentic for you in ways that are really skillful and will prevent a lot of conflicts from the start. Today, I had a great time talking with Rick about how we can better navigate conflicts inside of our important relationships. And the content that we explored during this episode was based at least in part on his new book, Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And we explored a lot of these questions through the lens of two characters, Alex and Blake, who are going through a couple of different kinds of difficulties inside of their relationship. We started the conversation with Rick sharing four common forms of conflict that just walked into his office as a clinical psychologist over and over again. And the first was disagreements about the meaning of something. What does it mean that a person came home late from work three nights in a row? What does that communicate about the relationship? Or what does it communicate about that person's level of effort at work? And it's really easy for two different people to look at what happened a fairly narrow thing, the person came home late from work, and interpret it radically differently. In the mind of one person, it's a communication that they don't want to be home on time or that they're unreliable. In the mind of the other person, it's a communication that they really care about their family and are doing everything they can to provide for them. Same situation, very different interpretations of it. And then second, disagreements about what somebody wants. Person A, Alex, wants X. Person B, Blake, wants Y. What do you do to reconcile those different wants? Relationships are easy when everyone wants the same thing. It's when we want different things that things get complicated. Third, disagreements about how somebody said something. And we spent a big chunk of the first half of the conversation exploring this. How do you navigate tone, situations where somebody is communicating useful content with bad process, and so on. And then finally, disagreements related to different kinds of temperaments or values or other more natural forms of inclination one way or the other. Let's say that one person likes things fairly orderly and the other likes things to feel a bit more lived in. One person is an extrovert, the other is an introvert. One's maybe very uh, cerebral or top-down, verbal, and the other is a bit more somatic, nonverbal, bottom-up. These are really common differences between people, but they can lead to a lot of conflict. The first example that we explored got to separating content from process, where person A, Alex, says something along the lines of, you're such an unreliable person, this is the third time this week you said you were going to be there on time, and you just keep on being late. And then person B, Blake, responds with something along the lines of, I just feel so attacked by you, I can't believe that you used that tone with me again, how dare you speak to me that way. Now, there are problems on both sides of the street here. Person A, Alex, is communicating maybe useful content, but they're doing so with somewhat ineffective process. And then person B, Blake, is responding to that bad process with bad process of their own. And also that bad process, very importantly, allows them to avoid Alex's content. And we focused on a couple of specific points in navigating this kind of a situation. The first one was what can we do 
to separate content and process out into different buckets as we talk about them. When everything gets entangled together, it's very, very hard to move through a disagreement because each person can just focus on the side of the conversation that is most useful for them. Blake can keep on focusing on the process. Alex can keep on focusing on the content. And maybe it's possible for you, if you're in the Blake role, to take a step back, pause for a moment, take a moment to process any emotions that immediately come up around Alex's communication, and say something along the lines of, hey, I definitely didn't want you to feel that way. I wasn't trying to communicate that about our relationship. Even separating out my intent, I feel really bad about my impact. I never want to have that kind of an impact on you. And wow, I'm going to do what I can in the future to really come through for you in this way because I understand how important it is for you. And then once that bucket has been dealt with, you can move on to bucket number two and we can have a conversation about, and at the same time, wow, it really makes me feel not great when you talk to me that way. And we're going to need to find a different way of communicating with each other for this to work. Both of those communications are important, but they're two separate conversations now. And when they get all entangled with each other, it's really hard for things to go well. One of the real interesting insights that I'm going to take away from this part of the conversation was just the framing of the idea of unskillful process and how a lot of the time it's actually very effective process from a person to communicate with that kind of emotional topspin or a lot of anger or resentment or whatever it is that they're doing. And the reason that it's effective is because they're looking for a gain other than conflict resolution. They're looking to get something out of the interaction other than problem solving. They maybe want, as Rick said, to feel a sense of connection to the person that they're arguing with, even if it's negative connection. It's still a thread of connection between the two people. And sometimes we can get a little stuck in talking about process. It's like, oh, it's just unskillful process. If they knew how to do better process, they would do it better. But a lot of the time, that's just not true. And it's actually very effective process. It's just toward a kind of iffy end. And it's really helpful for us to be able to see that in ourselves. I have definitely fallen into the trap of getting seduced by wanting to feel righteous or angry or whatever else toward another person. And this is helpful in two ways. First way, it's really helpful for us to be able to look at ourselves and go, wait, what am I really trying to get out of this? I've definitely fallen into the trap personally of wanting to feel righteous and affronted and aggrieved by somebody else and, and enter an argument or a conversation with the goal of expressing grievance rather than actually trying to solve a problem. And then on the other hand, it's really helpful for us to be able to look at other people and ask ourselves the question, okay, is this person actually engaging in unskillful process or wait, are they really going for something else here? And then we can make a choice deliberately about whether or not to give the other person what they want. And this then segued really naturally into one of our big themes, which was power. Power shows up in all of our relationships. Often arguments are about who can make the other person do things the way that we want them to be done. And we gave two practical examples that really center the role of power. And the first is the idea that maybe you've got a group of people who are going to hang out and we're deciding where we're going to hang out. And person A, Alex, says, you know what, we've hung out at a bar three times in the last week. I don't really want to hang out in a bar. I would much prefer it if we just kind of chilled at somebody's house or we went to a coffee shop or whatever else for A, B, and C reasons. And then person B, Blake, 
responds by saying something along the lines of, uh, you're just trying to control everyone, Alex. You're such a controlling person. I don't want to be controlled by you again. You're always trying to influence what we do and where we do it. And this is a really difficult situation to navigate for a variety of different reasons. First, we've exited content. We have gone to a meta conversation about the nature of our process with each other, not just in this interaction, but globally. And when you scale things up like that, all of the actions that happen right now become inflated in their importance. And then second, this isn't always the case, but it's relatively common for people to be projecting in this way. And it was a real insight for me when I realized that Blake in the first example was saying, hey, why are you trying to stop us from going to the bar? Is actually also expressing power. They just want to go to the bar. And so their kind of Aikido maneuver here is to make it about, oh, Alex, you're trying to control us, whereas Blake is actually the one who's trying to control things. And having that insight can allow us to choose our course of action. And Rick laid out a variety of different choices that somebody could make. They're all rational choices. For starters, you could just go with the flow. You could say, hey, whatever, I can suck it up. My relationships with these people are more important to me than the conflict that I would insert into the situation. Maybe this was a one-off. It's not very common for Blake to interact with me in this way. So, you know, I'll just let her do whatever she wants to do here, or I'll let him do whatever he wants to do here, and we'll just kind of move on. That's a rational choice. Or you could choose to engage the conflict in a variety of different ways. One way to do this is by recentering on content. Hey, I'm really not making that kind of a process statement. I'm just would prefer to go to a coffee shop because ABC. Or as Rick said, you could make a comment about essentially probability and the trust situation. Yeah, you're probably right. It's probably safe. But I think this is making things a little riskier than I want them to be. And I'm not willing to take on that risk. So if we could just slow down a little bit, that would be great. Then you can make choices about when you're timing your communication. You can engage it in the moment or you can wait until things have blown over a little bit to have a conversation about it. Maybe you wait until you're out of the car to have a conversation about how somebody was driving. Then third, you can just take a moment to pause. Pause, let things cool down for a second, give everybody the opportunity to breathe, and just exit the serve and volley that an argument can get into. We covered a lot today, and so I wasn't able to include all of it in the recap here. I think that this was a very rich conversation. And if you would like more material like this, again, Rick's new book is Making Great Relationships, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now on, and maybe leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. You can also find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.